Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and this is Recode Replay. Here's an interview from the stage of the 2017 Code Media Conference in Dana Point, California. You can find full coverage of all the speakers of the conference on Recode.net. Now I'm going to hand you off to Recode co-founder and The Verge Executive Editor, Walt Mossberg. I think maybe the news drives us to ask the first question, which is, can you talk a little bit about the decisions and stories that went into the Post's terrific journalism that have led to the resignation of uh, President Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn? Uh, Well, thank you. Uh, Well, look, we have a great national security team at the Post. It's always been one of the great strengths of the Post. Uh, We have uh, Greg Miller, Alan Nakashima, Adam Entus now, who have been the sort of the key reporters on that. We have some terrific editors as well. Uh, They're doing their job uh, to find out what's going on in this administration, like uh, so much of our team. Uh, And they've been working this story for, for quite a while. Obviously, there's been tremendous interest in the connections between Russia and the Trump administration. Uh, very much centered on, on Michael Flynn all along. Uh, he had gone to Russia, he participated, he sat next to Putin at one point. Uh, and then prior to actual of the recent stories, David Ignatius had reported in a column that uh, there were conversations between Flynn and the Russian ambassador to the United States uh, prior to the Trump folks taking, taking office. And so that, that, I think, initiated greater interest and they just kept pursuing that story as far as they could. And there's obviously more to do. And, and talk a little bit about because I was just noting backstage, you have a real crush of stories today about this and the implications. Um, and we, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the energy around the Post right now, because it's one of the papers that's really pressing hard along with the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about sort of how you look at uh, covering this. Now, just so you're aware, I started at the Washington Post in the mailroom. Um, it was my mailroom's never been better. Yes, thank you. I did a great job. <laughs> I was very good at delivering mail. Um, so I have huge regard for what you're doing, and I'm thrilled with all the energy that is, that is happening there. And we'll talk about Jeff Bezos in a little bit. But talk a little bit about how you're looking at this ongoing story and how you're covering it, because your stories have impact, implication and impact, and it's amplified by social media and the Internet and people covering it. So talk a little bit about how you're looking at covering this? Look, I mean, I just look at it as a, as a new administration that we should be covering as, as aggressively, as energetically as possible. Uh, if Hillary Clinton were in the White House, we would be doing the very same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to know who the, who the individuals are, what the policies are, what's the motivation for the policies, what's the impact of the policies, who's influencing those policies. Uh, and that's certainly true with the Trump administration, which in the first few weeks of the administration is trying to uh, essentially distru- disrupt the established order. <laughs> and uh, changed administration domestic policy and it changed uh, foreign policy as well uh, and and basically blow up the the Washington establishment. So there's a lot to cover Mm -hmm. uh, and we want to be all over that story and we are all over the story and covering an administration is absolutely central to the purpose of the Washington Post. We cover a lot of things, uh, but one thing that we absolutely have to cover better than anybody else uh, is who's in the White House, the federal agencies, Congress, the entire, the entire government, politics, and the policy. So, Marty, I understand that you'd be covering Hillary Clinton aggressively. I believe that. But I also you, you know, know, as you just said, that this is an administration that's trying to disrupt the entire establishment around, around Washington. As a journalist who's co- I've covered Washington a long time, Kara used to also, um, 
do you find uh, reporting it harder or easier in this kind of climate in terms of people willing, being willing to talk to you on either off the record or on well, the Because the Post was always sort of slightly access driven. It was sort of the, it was an insider, even though obviously it's well known for the Watergate and everything else. But it, there, when I was there, it was a very insider culture. Mm -hmm. um, sort well, of I think we have to, I think our journalism has to be less access driven. Uh, although obviously in this administration, as in many, uh, there are a lot of people who leak, and I think there are a lot of people who are leaking in this administration as well. Yeah, I've noticed uh, that. But it's not, just, it's not just that we're passive recipients of leaks. These are people, I mean, we cultivate uh, sources and have cultivated sources over a long period of time. Uh, the reporters are going out and doing hard work. I mean, this takes time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just a matter of waiting there for somebody, for somebody to give you leaks. The first story that we had that, that said that, that the National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, uh, had had substantive discussions about uh, possibly lifting sanctions or suggesting that sanctions would be lifted against Russia prior to the Trump administration taking, taking office. You know, these were, we had nine sources. Uh, we, saw, we quoted nine, I mean, anonymously, uh, attributed it to nine uh, sources uh, in the intelligence community. So, is that partly because the people in the intelligence community and presumably in the future, people in other parts of the government are fearful of being disrupted or offended or, or scared well, I, or whatever. Well, I'm not sure I want to get into the motivation of the sources to do anything to indicate who the sources might be. I think that would be inappropriate uh, for me to do. Uh, but obviously, people talk to you because they have a motive to speak to you. Mm -hmm. But talk, talk about that use of, of, of sources, because one, one thing Trump has done today is he's focusing on the leaks and not the actual problem, yeah. which is, seems par for the course. It looks like that's what sure. he tries to do. And that often happens. Yeah. Um, talk about that idea, because a lot of people don't feel like journalists should be using anonymous sources. I get a lot of pushback. I don't care, because I know who I'm talking to. But, um, but talk about that idea of what it's like to cover an administration like that and what you have to do, because on one hand, you have uh, a lot of people who don't trust the press, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, and, and the other, that these are, I, I'm guessing who you're, I'm not guessing who you're talking to, but they're clearly credible people that you all, that you have developed sources with. How do you feel about that push-pull in this day and age? In terms of anonymous sourcing? Yeah. Well, look, I think this is a classic case where anonymous sourcing actually has value. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been saying that, and the press has been saying that for quite, quite a while. I think we have to be very careful about how we use anonymous sources. We have to be clear who is a source. Mm -hmm. uh, a source should be somebody who has actual direct knowledge of something, uh, and as opposed to somebody who has heard something secondhand, mm -hmm. but actually is, a, is directly knowledgeable about, uh, about the information that you're reporting. Uh, but obviously, on the most sensitive, on some of the most sensitive subjects, people are not going to go public, uh, mm -hmm. and we can't expect them to go public. Uh, but we have to make sure that they are legitimate sources, that they know what they're talking about, uh, and when it's a matter of uh, of surpassing public interest, we obviously want to rely on them, uh, and and that's what we did in this instance. Can you imagine that uh, in the in, in the climate where you have a president who's openly hostile? to the press and has essentially declared the press the opposition party right. and the people around him have, have used that term. Can you imagine how fast will it be before you get into the same situation that Kay Graham and her editors were in with Nixon where it was just like open warfare specifically on the Washington Post? Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, you know, obviously I don't know. Uh, we're only three weeks into the administration, but it's I been know. active. It it's been an active, it's it been an active three Marty? weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> seems like an active three weeks. Um, you know, I think it's important to remember, even with the Watergate investigation, that took a long time. Nixon got reelected in the midst of that, in the midst of that investigation. Uh, so, uh, and we've had a lot of conflicts over time. Uh, Pentagon Papers case is an example of that. A lot of conflict. The administration actually went to the Supreme Court uh, to prevent publication, additional publication of the Pentagon, the Pentagon Papers. So, uh, yes, the administration, the president himself has said, uh, I have a running war uh, with the media. That's what he said when he uh, went to the CIA. Uh, the way I view it is that we're not, we're not at war with the administration. We're at work, okay? We're doing our jobs, doing our jobs as the, the press and what we're, we're expected to do. So, but it is interesting, it is interesting using the opposition idea of it. Why, talk about why you think they're doing that. I mean, I, everyone has thoughts of why they're doing it. And it's interesting to sort of, uh, to create in that kind of thing. And I understand there's a populist element and everything else, but how do you look at that when that happens? And do you worry about pop... I can't imagine worrying ever about popularity of the press. And I think most people in the press don't care what people think of them, so it's kind of an interesting thing to attack them on. But talk a little bit about that, about being portrayed that, the public not having trust in the press and, and things like that. Right. Well, first of all, I mean, on the issue of opposition party, I mean, I, first of all, we're, we're not, we don't act like a party. I mean, as you know, well know, the press can barely... I mean, we, we don't coordinate with each other. We just compete with each other. We oh, fight with each meeting. other. Oh, well, we miss the meeting. I miss the meeting. We're yeah. certainly not a, not a party, that's for sure. Uh, we like a party, but we're not a party. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> we, uh, and as far as being you know, the opposition, we're not the opposition either. We're independent. And I think we've reached a strange point where just being independent, which the press should be, uh, is portrayed as being opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, we must be independent. Uh, that's, I think, the definition of ethical journalism. And so, um, you know, why would they do that? Well, first of all, it, serves, it has served their purposes over the course of the campaign to, to demonize the press, uh, to try to delegitimize the press. Uh, and, you know, what has happened over the campaign is not just to try to discredit us and de delegitimize us and marginalize us, but actually dehumanize us, to use language that says we're scum, that we're garbage, that we're the, you know, at one point he said we were the lowest form of humanity. Uh, that wasn't enough, so he said we were the lowest form of life itself. <laughs> um, so I don't know where we go from there, but right. uh, that's apparently where we are. So Bacteria um, work cheap. In the but I, yeah, but I think, you know, so during a campaign, Look, since our popularity ratings are, are not high, uh, it served their purposes. It appealed to their base. But now that, now that they're in office, obviously it serves their purpose in another way, and that is to portray us as not being independent, not being an independent check on them, but actually just being a political opposition. And in that way, to sort of neutralize themselves and immunize themselves from actual real reporting. So talk about that on, because, you know, Kellyanne Conway's sort of, for some reason, has become become something. I don't understand why the focus on her. Um, but, you know, she goes on these, these programs, and lately it's fascinating to watch George Stephanopoulos be super aggressive. I'm thrilled. Um, and uh, Matt Lauer all of a sudden is like an attack dog, which is... <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I just leaned in this morning. Um, but I'm glad. I'm, I'm thrilled that they're doing that. Um, talk about that, like, when you have them doing alternative facts, fake news, all this stuff. And, and then I want to get into the Wall Street Journal's Jerry Baker, one of your close friends. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, about that idea, because he just gave a speech calling that they're sort of more neutral fake news, for example. 
So, uh, so I'm sorry. The, so the question is the, the question is let's start with the, the idea of this idea of putting out alternative facts, fake news. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, I look. I mean, I think first of all we have to understand that the alternative to facts is not alternative facts. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. fiction. Right. Okay? So. Uh, <laughs> so I think. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think this is a really concerning development that mm -hmm. we say, we seem to think that there is no such thing as objective fact. That it's all just a matter of personal mm -hmm. opinion. And there's a, a consistent effort, not just within this administration, but in other venues as well, to uh, try to make it appear that there is no really a real objective fact, that it, is all, that it is all opinion, and that nothing can really be believed. Uh, there was a, you know, a, a Trump surrogate who said in the campaign that uh, there's no such thing anymore, unfortunately, as facts. Mm -hmm. uh, well, my view is that there is such a thing as facts, and the press's job is to tell you what they, tell you what they are. Uh, and that is, uh, and it's, it's concerning that people, we m might have a society where people just feel like there's, who knows what to believe, so you're allowed to believe whatever you'd like to yeah. believe, whatever you feel is right. Do you right. think that genie is out of the bottle? Because like, I literally had a relative, there was a story about Hillary Clinton being a lizard um, person, and, and I Did said you not, this. You didn't believe I that? didn't, it was big, I don't. Um, it was on, I, I've tried to scratch her face. You have several relatives yes, like yes, exactly, and they were like, they, I was like this, I was complaining to Facebook about it because it, it was huge on Facebook, and, and it was about her being a lizard, and one of my relatives was, I said, this is just not true. She's not a lizard. She may not like her, but she's not a lizard. This is a conversation. Did she believe you? And, no, it's a guy, of course. Um, oh, and, um, and literally he goes, well, that's your opinion, Kara. And I'm like, what? Like, what? She's not a lizard. And it was like, I can't believe I was in this conversation. Right. Well, look, I mean, there was that very disturbing incident at, at uh, Comet Ping Pong in, in Washington, which is a pizza place. Uh, and, you know, this whole suggestion that uh, the, the Clinton emails, that there was sort of a subtext there uh, that suggested that there was a sex ring occurring in the, in the basement. And some guy came up from North Carolina, uh, brought a gun, uh, fired a few times, fortunately did not hit anybody. Uh, and, um, you know, how people believe such things is... is they can't even make I mean, very good pizza at that place. Th they don't? I, I haven't been there. Oh. So, yeah. uh, so let, me, let me ask you about... That may be true. Uh, I don't know. So what do you think uh, about... I, I want to... I before we get to Baker, I want to ask you about the, this, this language uh, uh, that, that is a subject of debate in journalism. So the New York Times has printed the word lie with regard to things that Trump has said yeah. on a few occasions. Jerry Baker... I guess it does get to Baker, at the Wall Street Journal has made a big deal about how you, you can't call it a lie because lies involve knowing people's inner intentions and you can't know that. Where do you stand on that? I, I, I read the Post every day. Is, right. And you know, and you I know that, have called I, things I know that Kara's brought this up before. So I have. I, I had of, a big I, argument with I know, Cameron I, I, about it. I know. I, maybe we're headed for an argument here. Yeah. But um, look, I mean, I think we should call things false when we know that they're, that they're false. And we have called things absolutely false. And we say that in headlines. We falsehood say that is in your favorite word. Falsehood, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, lie does suggest that you, that you know that the person knew that it was false at the time that he or she said it and then said it, said it anyway. Uh, and if we have evidence of that, uh, then we would, we would use that term. Uh, absent evidence of that. You've never we had, would, but I don't think you have used that term, have you? I don't, we, have not, we have not yet used that term, no. And is that because you, you've never encountered a case where you... Not yet, not yet. So where we know that he, what he, went, that he knew what he said was false when he said it. Uh, there can be all sorts of reasons. That Why are you giving false. someone the benefit of the doubt in that way? Because and how would you know they knew it was a lie when it's so obviously a lie? If, if he was presented with a report and then, and then 
we knew that he was presented with a report and then went out and said something different. There, there are any number of ways that people could have evidence that he lied. Uh, but you know, we would, we would use that term, uh, we would reserve that term for the time that we could actually What do you think of the Times doing that, which I agree with, obviously. Apparently. Uh, so I, I, I agree with look, it. Look, I mean, I think yeah. I'm being double teamed. The entire, um, the entire uh, so, room agrees with us, but go ahead. Okay. No, I, I don't know. Look, I, I don't make a judgment on the Times. So I think mm -hmm. they make their own judgments. Uh, they haven't used it repeatedly, Twice, by the way. Right. So they've used it uh, pretty sparingly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think if you're going to use it, I mean, you do want to use it when you, you feel that it's really justified by the right. facts. And look, we all exercise our own judgment on right, these sorts of right. things. Uh, at the moment, I think to say something is simply not true is what has been appropriate. But you're not, you're not aligning yourself with Baker. This is Jerry Baker, the, who's got the similar position to Marty at the Wall Street Journal, uh, who has basically said he's never going to use that word. He said he's never going to use, going to use that Wait, word. Yeah. I would never say that I'm never going to use, we're never going to use that word. I, I'm uh, putting we can, words, we, I, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what I If think. we can document that uh, he, he stated a falsehood and that he knew it was false at the time that he said it, we would use that word. Okay. All right, but I'm not going to ask you where you stand on the word fib, but... Um, but the word fib? Fib, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, a lot I haven't of used that going. word in a very long time. Yeah, there's a whole lot of it going on. Um, when you think about, talk about the journal, because you've been in quite a few kerfuffles with him. Not quite uh, a few. Another great word. Not quite a few. Quite a few. Well, enough. One. More than one. Two. Whatever. I don't care. It, that was a fib. Um, so um, <laughs> you have staked out a position. He, has staked, he just yesterday had a meeting with his reporters um, talking about use of the word Muslim, majority Muslim right. countries. And then he used a term which I was hugely offended by, but I'm easily offended by Jerry Baker, um, which was um, that it's fake news, mm -hmm. that, it, that they're not being fake. That anyone who criticizes them for being soft on Trump is yeah. peddling fake news. Yeah, what did Which you think is of a that? direct Trumpian kind of comment. Right. Uh, How do you feel about that? Look, I'm, I'm not going to... You know, he's made some statements about the rest of the media. I'm not interested in making statements about the Wall Street Journal. I have tremendous respect for many, for a lot of the journalists at the Wall Street Journal who are fantastic. Uh, and uh, I know quite a few of them. Uh, we've hired people from there. Uh, I, you know, have great admiration for a lot of the work that they do. And I have no interest in, in getting into a fight with them. Um, but but I, I don't want you to get in a fight with them. But how, do, how, how, when you're an editor of a paper, do you have to... Is there a fair? Is there a place of fair anymore? Because given all you know, all the things that are going. Look, on. I mean, I think what's our job? I mean, our job is to go out and get the facts. Okay, that's our job. Go out to get the facts, find out what they are, uh, tell us, determine where those facts lead us, and then tell the people to that's people part in of a straightforward. We also have columns. We do, but I mean, it's fundamentally, let's start at a base level uh, to to get the facts, uh, add them all up, see what they add up to. And then tell people what we, we have found, and I believe, tell it to them in a, in a straightforward, direct, uh, unflinching way. And not to, not to mask it in any way, not to masquerade it, uh, not to uh, uh, water it down in any way, but to tell people what we've really found. Uh, and that's what I think we ought to be doing. We should go about our work in an honest, honorable, and fair way. But I think we also need to think about what fairness means. And fairness also means being fair to the public. And that means telling them what we really found and not pretending that we found something less than that. All right, let's talk about your, your ongoing future ability to do that. So, <clears throat> obviously, newspapers have been hugely disruptive 
disrupted and um, even online to some extent um, to get those facts out to as many people as possible is it necessary to have digital paywalls is that just an absolute necessity uh, I think it's helpful for our economic model for sure uh, and I think in order for us to, to sustain what we're doing journalistically we need to earn as much revenue as possible and we find that it's it's working for us uh, our subscriptions are growing at a very rapid rate right now uh, it was doing that during the election uh, doing that post after the election and we're very pleased with that and it's becoming a very significant source of revenue for us and that revenue is necessary in order to sustain our journalism doesn't it put an economic barrier between your ability to promulgate those true facts uh, that oh. you find out and some members of the public being able to consume them and instead of going to you where you're where you're doing this kind of gutsy reporting with facts they'll believe their only source will be somebody else. Well, look, I mean, we had over 100 million unique visitors uh, coming to our digital platform, all of our digital platforms uh, in, in, in the latter part of uh, last year. Uh, and that's a lot of people. Uh, and we're, so we're able to reach a lot of people and we could go higher than that even with a, even with a paywall. Uh, we give people access to five free articles a month. Uh, and then they share it with other people. So I don't think that we're preventing people from getting the information that we publish. And on top of that, when we do stories like the Flynn story, other people follow it and it circulates to additional people that way. So talk about the importance, you obviously have a pretty famous owner now, uh, Jeff Bezos. Talk about that experience. You started with the Grams, who yep. I work for. Mm -hmm. um, he sold it to Jeff Bezos. How has that experience been? And what did you expect at the beginning? Uh, well, it's been a great experience. I mean, look, when... when right at the beginning, do you go, oh, Jesus, this guy, or what? Uh, well, you know, I've told this to Jeff myself. I don't think I said it that way, but uh, <laughs> I think I, um, uh, I... As I told Jeff, and this is true, I said that I thought that it would be good for the Post. Uh, I did not know whether it would be good for me. Uh, because obviously you have a new owner, he might want a new editor. It's mm -hmm. not inconceivable. It's happened before. Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, but I thought that it would be good for the Post because I thought that our industry and, and the Washington Post uh, needed new ideas. Uh, he was a, somebody who was able to bring, obviously, uh, first of all, a sense of growth. He was, gonna, he was going to want to grow. He's not known as a person who just wants to shrink, so that was positive. Uh, also, he's a person who, gave, who brought uh, a deep knowledge of technology. That was going to be really helpful to the Post. And even beyond that, he brought a real understanding of consumer behavior, which I, a lot of people haven't focused on, and I think that's incredibly helpful uh, to us since we're a consumer-facing consumer business. And so I thought all of those would be really helpful. And our industry had been um, uh, deprived, I think, of a lot of new thinking. Uh, everybody was thinking about the same things, going about it the same way, nothing was really working, and I thought it was really important that, uh, that we have somebody who came in with fresh, uh, fresh perspective. And I was confident that Jeff was going to be able to bring that, bring that to the post. And I was just hopeful that I would be there uh, to experience that and ideally to contribute to that. So since you are still there, what have been, can you give us a couple of concrete examples where Jeff being the owner with all those qualities you mentioned has made a difference? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think, uh, look, the first Beyond thing. Beyond just a good source of funding, which is important. But yeah, right. I mean, I saw somebody use the word benefactor. He's not a benefactor for us. I mean. 
Uh, we're not treated as a charity. We're a business. He wants us to be a business. The whole idea is to create a sustainable business model for the Washington Post. So give us a And we should be grateful for that because, uh, but if, because if someday he decides that he doesn't want to own the Washington Post anymore, it would be good for us to have a sustainable business not model and not be his charity. Right. So he's not creating a charity for us. Look, when he first came in, he immediately changed the strategy for the Post. We had been a, a news organization that was focused on, as they put it at the time, for and about Washington. Certainly a recognition that that was the center of government, but focused primarily on the Washington metro. Very local, yeah. So D.C., uh, Maryland, and, and Virginia. And that's what we were doing. And we were shrinking in order to fit that strategy. Uh, when he came in, he said he didn't think that that was the appropriate strategy. He was quite honest and forthright about that, and he said that he thought that we needed to be national. And one of the points that he made is, look, the internet has taken a lot away from this industry. Uh, it took, fundamentally, it took away the security that we had in this industry, where you used to ha be, have to have presses and trucks and ink and paper and all that stuff to, to get into the business, high barriers to entry. So, uh, and it, Obviously, it undermined the, the advertising model for the industry, and to some extent, to a large extent, the readership model for the industry as well. And so we suffered a lot because of the internet. Why not take advantage of the gifts that the internet has to offer? And the most important gift that the internet, or fundamental gift that the internet has to offer is free distribution. And so here we had the capacity to distribute to everybody around the country and even around the world uh, at, virtually no, at virtually no cost. And by the way, we also happened to have a brand that was pretty well known. When people talk about the United States, they'd say Washington as a synonym, essentially, for, for the United States. And so we were one of the few media brands that had the opportunity, a few newspaper brands that had the opportunity to be national in scope in the digital and international in scope in the digital age. So that was one thing he did. And also talking about, okay, well, what does that mean? We moved more heavily into the world of aggregation. Uh, we, um, some of these were our ideas. I mean, he asked for our ideas, and we, we gave him our ideas. Some of them were his ideas. Uh, so we moved more heavily into the world of aggregation, which he encouraged us to do, and we did. Uh, we created an overnight crew that produces something called Morning Mix. Uh, they work from in the enviable hours uh, of 10 o'clock at night to uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, scanning the, the world, the Internet, look at what's gaining traction, what stories have we not reported, our, staff, our own staff hasn't reported, and trying to jump on those stories, do their own reporting, use some aggregation, but also add their own style of writing, which was great. We, uh, he, we created this model where we offered free access to the, to the, the Washington Post, to newspapers around the country, uh, if, to their subscribers, that their subscribers could actually have free access to the Washington Post. Uh, it was added value for those newspapers. Uh, it's not a major source of traffic for us, but it's, it was a way of getting our name out around the country in a way that we had not done uh, to date. Uh, we created a lot of, look, we learned from the people who went over to, to Vox Media, who started Vox.com. So Ezra Klein was at the, was, had been at the Post and had, had, was the founder of Wonkblog. Uh, and you could see that that was producing a significant amount of traffic. And so, well, why wouldn't we replicate that? Uh, we added to Wonkblog. We created all sorts of other blogs that were going to be appealing to a national audience uh, where the, the writers were going to be sensitive to uh, what their traffic numbers were, they were going to be paying a lot of attention to their audience, uh, all of that. We, we did that. You know, one of the questions at the Post was, uh, look, Huffington Post was created overnight. Why didn't we do that? There was a lot of sort of self-reflection about that and, you know, Why we, should have, we, should have, we, should have done, we should have done that. And the answer to that was, well, okay, so let's do it. 
what's the big deal here? And we created something called Post Everything, which is a venue for uh, people not, who are not on staff, not regular op-ed columnists, traditional op-ed columnists, who write in the moment. A lot of personal memoir type things, people talking about their own experiences. Uh, we go out and actively solicit people to write for it uh, and to write quickly. We help them uh, with the writing as well. Uh, but we see you know, great, idea, great out ideas out there. So there are a whole range of things that we have done. We've paid a lot more attention to, to social media, how our, our, how our work is distributed. Uh, we have a very large uh, audience, engagement, <coughs> audience engagement team not just paying attention to Facebook and Twitter and, and, uh, and all of that, uh, and to Google, but to paying attention to all sorts of other uh, social media outlets that can be advantageous to us. To How get often do you quickly. talk to him? We have a, a, a conference call with him once every, every two weeks uh, where we talk about tactics and strategy. Uh, I don't talk to him at all about our coverage. He never interferes in our coverage, doesn't suggest stories or anything like that. Uh, he's proud of the work that we've done. Uh, he's been very supportive. Uh, he's said that. Uh, it's been great. He's, it's been wonderful for the people on the staff. But he focuses on strategy and tactics, and that's the discussion that we have once every two and, weeks. And, and then uh, periodically we see him. He comes to Washington. You sound, and we're going to get to questions next, you sound super geeky right now, by the way. Geek, that was a whole, yeah, geeky. Well, um, what do you think, the last question I ask is, what do you think a modern journalist has to be now? What is your ideal, if you could create a journalist, what do they have to, to be? Well, you know, I mean, I think that, um, first of all, they have to be good at all the fundamentals. They have to be a great journalist. They have to know how to report, uh, know how to write. They have to be good with the language, all of that. Uh, but they also have to understand all the new tools that we have uh, and the ways that we tell stories, which is completely different. Uh, the internet is a, is a different medium. Uh, we have to recognize that, different from print, different from radio, different from television. Uh, and actually, as has been pointed out to me, it's not just a medium, it's mediums that we're operating in right now. Mobile is a different medium. Uh, we're now published, we just started publishing on Snapchat, uh, and that's a, different, that's a different medium. The podcasts that we do, you know, what we, what we do on, uh, on, the, on Amazon's Echo and, and devices like that, that's a different medium. So we're operating in so many different mediums right now. And so I think people have to recognize that. And then also, I think it's really important that journalists be entrepreneurs. Uh, now, this would have been antithetical to our profession in a, in a previous era. But I think that we have to be, ideas are really important. Ideas are really important just to, to being a good journalist, like what stories you're going to be pursuing. But also, we need to have ideas about how we can get our work to more people, how we can make our work more attractive, how we can work successfully in this environment. So people who enter this profession today are going to have to be entrepreneurs, either working for entrepreneurial, independent entrepreneurial companies or being entrepreneurs yeah, you know, uh, in, within companies. We know something about that. We know that. something about that. The, the word is reporterpreneur, which is the worst word ever. Reporterpreneur? That's Try a bad to, word. We shouldn't use that I know, again. but that's so, the word. Very bad use. word. Reporterpreneur. Try it. Keep practicing it. Go ahead. Let's do questions. Hi, I'm... Jason Rapp, first of all, God, is it so refreshing to hear a serious person taking their job seriously, so thank you for that. Uh, I guess digging into the Baker discussion, the, the context there is that is ownership, and Baker's owner, Rupert Murdoch, his politics are quite clear. Uh, your counterpart at the New York Times has been at least following a dictate since 1896 to deliver the news without fear or favor. And you just said you, that Bezos never talks to you about the news. So where, what is that mandate to you? And are, are you creating it? Or where do you think he stands in the 
what the journalistic mission uh, or that kind of touchstone is for the journalism at the Post. Sure. I, I didn't say he never talks to us about the news. He doesn't give us any instructions about how to cover the news. So obviously he reads what we do and, you know, praises the work that he's seen. Uh, he very much, he, he talks, he's talked quite eloquently about sort of growing up in the era of Watergate and watching the Watergate hearings and how much that that affected him at the time. And he does believe very strongly about, as he puts it, shining light in dark corners. Uh, he does believe that the, the role of the press is to hold government uh, accountable and, and other powerful individuals accountable. And so uh, that's what he wants us to do. He takes pride in that. That has been absolutely core to the mission of the Washington Post for a long time, not just Watergate, but since Watergate and even before Watergate. Uh, that's been core to the Washington Post. And I was just reading this the other day on the plane uh, because I'm reading this history of the Pentagon Papers. And um, it mentioned the Articles of Incorporation of the Washington Post. And in the Articles of Incorporation of the Washington Post, it talks about us being an independent newspaper, independent. And that's what we, uh, working on behalf of the, our community and the principles of a free press. Uh, that's what we were when we were incorporated and that's what we are today. Felix? Yeah. Um, so there are two different views of the way that the media should engage the Trump administration. Um, one is that he is attacking the media, as you've said, in unprecedented kind of ways, that he is qualitatively different from any president who's come before him, and that um, that oppositional stance that is his doing is going to necessarily going to create a, a kind of need on the behalf of the media to be much more explicitly oppositional. Um, the other view, which, it, which is what you've said and what Jerry Baker has said too, is basically our job hasn't changed. Our job is to find the facts, to report them, to be tough when we find something, you know, newsworthy to report. And, and basically nothing has changed. So the question which I have for you is that if you're saying that and Jerry Baker is saying that, and honestly there's nothing which you said on stage today which Jerry Baker hasn't also said, how, what's the difference between you and him? What's the, how can we tell the difference between what you're doing and what, you know, basically this kind of almost Trumpish mouthpiece is saying? Well, look, I, I, I don't know. I think that's for readers to judge. Uh, and I think you just judge. You, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't see us as the opposition party to the administration, and I don't see myself as the opposition party to the Wall Street Journal either, by the way. We're competitors, uh, and I think that uh, they, do, they do great work. I think that you, readers can judge what they see. Uh, it, our work is out there for everybody to see, for everybody to critique uh, and, to, uh, and to assess in, in any way they want to. Uh, I'm proud of the work that we've done. Uh, we want to continue on that path. Uh, I don't know that it's unprecedented. If you go back and read the history of the Nixon administration, uh, it was incredibly hostile and aggressive toward the press. Go look at what his, his vice president, Spiro Agnew, uh, before he had to leave office, what he, what, what, what he said at the time about the, uh, the, you know, about the press. Nattering, uh, nattering nabobs of negativism was just yeah. the, was the mildest, uh, one of the more mild comments. By the way, made. he had to leave office because the Wall Street Journal did that, got that scoop. Right. So. Um, Look, I mean, I think that our job is to, uh, as what is, what is was originally conceived, why, why was the First Amendment created in the first place? Uh, and that is that we were to be an independent check on uh, government and politicians and policymakers. 
That's what we are. Uh, that's what we have been. That's what we are. That's what we will be. Can we get the house lights yeah, up, by um, the way? Felix, um, he's not going to say it. I think the journal's done some great work, but I think Jerry Baker's a suck up. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts were about uh, BuzzFeed's publishing of the uh, Trump intelligence oh, dossier and um, how that moved the conversation forward. Um, when you have something that is being talked about or being discussed in the highest reaches of government, insiders know about it. Um, do you think that the public should know about it, even if you can't independently verify it. And, and it was uh, given to the president. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Uh, look, uh, different media organizations came to different judgments. We came to a different judgment from uh, BuzzFeed, and I stand by the judgment that we made. And that is that, um, you know, we think that there's a base level of verification that has to take place before you publish things. Uh, we, uh, we get a lot of things. Uh, and particularly during campaigns where there's opposition research and information being passed around, it circulates all over the place. I don't think that we should just put out there for everybody to see every single thing that passes over across our desk. Uh, we, I think, have an obligation to do uh, what I talked about earlier, and that is go through the process of verification. Uh, at the very least, we needed to verify something in that report. We hadn't really verified anything in that report. And uh, I don't think that just putting up that, that report and saying it's around and here it is, uh, it was the right thing to do. And by the way, BuzzFeed didn't do that until CNN uh, did its, its report. So somehow it didn't feel that it should do that prior to the CNN report. Once the CNN report came out, then it said, okay, here's the entire report. And that uh, President Trump got to see it wasn't enough of a news hook for you? He got to see the summary. Summary of it, yeah. Look, this was a piece of uh, work that was done for as, as opposition research, and I think that there were serious allegations made in, there, in, in that report, and we have an absolute obligation to try to verify that information before just putting it out there for people to, uh, to, to talk about. That would be a tough verification. I believe, look, I believe that verification is at the core of our mission. Very good point. I just, just want to say I'm a new subscriber to The Post, and just thank you for your work. So, uh, thank you. I'm curious about uh, something very specific, which is the way David Fahrenheit went about reporting his, uh, his story uh, on, uh, on the charities, which, which lasted a long time. And he was in a reasonably unprecedented, although please correct me if I'm wrong, a reasonably unprecedented way, he kept posting uh, consistent updates on Twitter and other places, soliciting uh, feedback and kind of engaging his audience. And I, I thought of that as kind of a reasonably novel way of doing reporting and kind of it very, very much leverages the strengths of today's universe. First of all, is that something that he just kind of did on his own or is that something you discussed internally? And then um, secondly, are you guys thinking about that type of reporting as something on a go forward basis that, that we'll see more of from, not just from David, but from other reporters at the Post and yeah. elsewhere? He's a uh, perfect journalist. Well, I think that's, that's, a great, that's a great example and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, he did it on his own, and I'm kind of glad we didn't discuss it, because God knows, we might have had come to a different conclusion. It's very unusual, because most people who are engaged in investigative reporting, they're very secretive. They keep everything. They don't even want their colleagues to know what they're working on. And uh, when I was at the Boston Globe, you know, the spotlight team was on a different floor in a different place. You could barely find them. We enjoyed so, that movie. Good. Okay. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, so this was very unusual. But it was very effective, uh, and it was a novel technique to sort of say, okay, look, I'm trying to find anybody out there uh, who has received money directly from Donald Trump's own pocket. Uh, please let me know. 
How could he possibly know without going out to the public that he had reached every conceivable possible recipient? And so he went out and then he said, okay, here's every, he put his, no, his actual paper notes, he'd take pictures of them. It was kind of a blend of old media and new media, his handwritten notes and say, here are all the ones that I've spoken to. Anybody have anything else? And people would mention something and then he would go check them out. And it also, when he was looking for the, the paintings of, of Donald Trump uh, that had been acquired with, with his foundation's funds, he didn't, we didn't know where they were. And so he put out a call to, to find it. And you know, Quick. one woman just went on to TripAdvisor on all the Trump properties and started looking at all the photos. I mean, people, you know, they just took it upon themselves. They went, went and looked at every photo from tr every Trump property that she could find, hundreds of photos, and lo and behold, stumbled across a picture of the, uh, of the painting, of one of the paintings, and then report, uh, reported it to him. And uh, he put that up and said, oh, well, she found this. She found it at the Doral uh, Country Club in, in Miami. And then, uh, but he didn't know if it was still there. Uh, one of the, the anchors for Univision, uh, Enrique Acevedo, went, went down, booked, checked himself into the hotel, uh, using points, as he pointed out. Um, <laughs> that, um, and then, uh, obviously, as a, a Spanish speaker, he, he just talked to the, the, the workers there at the hotel about where's the painting of Donald Trump, and they pointed it to him. He took a picture and sent it back to, sent it back to David, and we published it. Uh, so he enlisted the help of the public. I think it is new. Yeah. And are we trying to use that? Yes. We just created, we announced that we're creating a so-called rapid response investigative team on top of the investigative team that we have traditionally had. Uh, they've done great work, but they, the work tends to take sort of a longer period of time. And this is to turn things around more quickly and also to use techniques like that. It doesn't have to be exactly like that, but there may be more innovative techniques that are available to us in a digital era that traditional investigative reporters uh, are not aware of or not inclined to use. And so we're hopeful that this particular team will uh, try to find those new techniques, uh, use them, and then produce great journalism just as David did. Cool. We have time for one quick question. Sorry, everybody else, we're just out of time, but go ahead. Sure, this one's fairly quick. Um, so it seems in, in very short order, Trump and the administration have embraced using the term fake news to call things they don't like, um, whether it's fake or not. Yeah. And on the one hand, we have the stories that are fake news, like Kara's story about Hillary Clinton being a lizard or Pizzagate. And then on the other hand, you have what I think I would consider more to be propaganda, where they're pushing voters, um, fraud. voter fraud to eventually probably launch a voter suppression type of initiative. How do you balance coveraging these two types of stories so that they don't all just get subsumed into this loud noise of fake news that isn't necessarily fake? And then how right. do you focus on something that's propaganda being pushed for political purposes and fake news that's just fake? Yeah, well, like the lizard thing, we're not that terribly concerned about it. So uh, we're not gonna be putting reporting resources on that one. So, um, uh, but you know, when the president goes and says that there are three to five million people who illegally voted for voted for his his opponent, that's a serious matter, right? Uh, and I think it's a serious matter that a president would say something like that uh, and not produce any evidence of it, uh, or to say that people were bussed up from Massachusetts to go vote in the New Ham in New Hampshire, uh, and there is no evidence of that. Uh, anyone has an obligation to produce evidence when they make a serious allegation especially the President of the United States, when he says that there is massive voter fraud and that he's going to initiate an investigation of voter fraud, 
Before any investigation takes place, you would expect that there would be actual evidence of significant voter fraud, and there is none. And that we take very seriously, and we write about how that's false, that's absolutely false information, that there's no evidence of that. We've written about that, we've written about that extensively. I mean, look, we're in a weird time now because, um, you know, one of the people out there is uh, this radio host and, and internet uh, a guy who puts out Infowars.com who uh, he has actually alleged in the past that some of the mass shootings that have taken, that have been reported, that those are, those are hoaxes, all right? That the, that the, uh, sh the mass shooting at, at Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, where all these kids were killed and, and adults were killed, uh, that that was uh, synthetic, uh, that there were actors used, things like that. Turns out that, you know, Donald Trump gave him an interview uh, during the campaign said that his, uh, that his reputation was amazing. It is amazing, but not quite in the way, <laughs> not, not quite in the way that was in, intended. Uh, and so his reputation is amazing, and CNN is fake news. Now, this is sort of head spinning, right? So uh, CNN is not fake news, uh, and this guy's reputation is not amazing in the way that uh, the, the president's comments were intended. Anyway, head spinning. Very thank, you, Marty. thank you, Marty. Very thank you, Marty. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. You can find all the podcasts from Code Media and our other conferences at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Or just go to Recode.net for full coverage of the Code Media Conference. If you like this sort of interviews, then good news. We do interviews just like them every week on Recode's free podcasts. I host Recode Decode and co-host Too Embarrassed to Ask with Lauren Good of The Verge. And the producer of Code Media, Peter Kafka, has new interviews with the smartest people from the media world every Thursday on Recode Media. You can find all these shows on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Or just go to recode.net slash podcasts.